Well, good morning. Oh, that was very formal and polite, wasn't it? I always feel like it's normally a bit more of a mess when you say good morning to a room full of people, but uh, not round here, I know. It's all better ordered. We're in this series, Restored, looking at freedom in Christ. And so we've been looking at how we find freedom through the person of Jesus. And we've been a couple of weeks in now. Hillary spoke a couple of weeks back. Then we took a, a, sort of a little break because of Vision Sunday. But this morning, we're going to be back into it. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible and can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that'd be really good. We're going to be talking a lot about freedom through this term, and it seems to me that there's a number of different ways in which you can stop someone being free or hold someone captive. There's a number of different things you could do. To stop someone from being free or hold them captive, you could do it through physical force, coercion. Right? You could put people in chains. You can stop them from being able to move like they want to move. You can manacle them to the wall. You could put walls or bars around them and physically force them not to be able to go where they want to go. Right? That's how slavery works. That's how the prison system constrains freedom. So that's one way of making people captive. Or you can do it through laws. You can say, if you do this, then the following sanctions will be applied. You will lose your money, your property, whatever. You can do it through need. You can make people need something from you which you will only give them if you do what they say. You must come to me for food, and if you don't and do what I say, you won't get any food. So there's various ways in which we can captive, hold captive other people. But each of those ways, in the end, breaks down after a while if people's hearts and minds are still free. Right? In fact, just on the way up here, I was listening to the radio in which it was talking about the fact we're very nearly 30 years anniversary of the falling of the Berlin Wall, which is a great example of this, that you can put up walls and have a whole system of laws and actually spies and all sorts of punishments and things. But in the end, if people's hearts and minds are free, the dam will break. It's just a question of when. Same could be said of colonialism and many things. But there is one way of enslaving people that can hold them captive for their entire lives and can hold their family captive for generations and can hold even a civilization captive for centuries. And that way of holding people captive is through the power of a lie. Through the power of a lie. You can enslave people by getting them to believe a lie. You can have them under your control for centuries as a society as a whole. And it's the devil's favorite method of enslaving people. The devil's fine with slavery and prisons and laws and punishments. He loves that stuff. But actually, that's not his favorite. The devil's favorite method of enslaving people is using the power of a lie. That's where he gets his name. The word devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, which means slanderer, liar, accuser. Person who says things about you that are not true to trap you in the lie. That's who he is. That's what Jesus says of him in John 8. So it's the devil. He, when, he's, when he lies, that's like his native language. My native language is in English. When I try and speak French, I have to concentrate hard to do it. But naturally, what comes out of me is English. The devil's natural language, lying. That's what he does all the time. He doesn't even notice he's doing it. Just comes out with lies all the time. And Jesus says, that's who he is. He's the father of lies. And the way that he wants to enslave you, us, the church, the world, is through the power of a lie. That's his primary method. That's what he did in the garden, right? You will not surely die. First thing he says, lie. All the way through history, carries on lying. The other day I was reading the storybook Bible to my son, 
And that little bit in the story when the devil first speaks and tells a lie, and he couldn't contain himself, and he shouted at the little Bible, liar, liar, pants on fire. I was so proud of him. I thought, yes, that's, what, that's basically what I'm preaching on on Sunday. I want us to do that. At times, to be able to recognize the lie when you see it. But some of those lies are much more insidious and more powerful. You don't even notice that he's telling them to you. Lies like, not just you will not surely die, but God doesn't really love you. He doesn't really like you, actually. He has to, sort of. He says he does, because he made you and stuff. And he wants to be seen as a good guy. But he doesn't like you. He doesn't love you. The devil loves that lie. He's been eating out on it for generations. Life has no meaning. He loves that lie. There's no such thing as truth. He loves that lie. It brings some people to despair. Some people kill themselves over that lie. The devil loves it. He says to a victim of abuse, he lies. He says, you deserved that. You had it coming because of that thing you did. He says it to an addict, somebody who's addicted to porn or drugs, whatever it may be. You will never be free of this. So he loves it. He says it all the time. And you know what he said to my dad when my dad was a teenager? Through, through the mouth of a teacher as it happens. You'll always be a nothing, Wilson. Yeah? He loves lies like that. That's his stock in trade. That's his native language. You must never underestimate the enslaving power of a lie. But you must never underestimate the saving power of the truth. Because Jesus said in the very same passage we just mentioned, John 8, he says, if you abide in my word, you'll be truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And when you know it, it will liberate you from all of those powers and all of those lies that the devil has been using and he'll have nothing left to hit you with. We're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death's at work in us, but life is at work in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what's been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of God. The truth will set you free. So how do you live in the truth? How do you stand on it? How do you own it for yourself? How do you know it? What tools have we got for renouncing lies and standing in truth? And this passage, and Paul writes a lot about this theme really, but in this passage, Paul picks up three things that I can see particularly that may help us, just ordinary things in life that can help us stand on the truth for ourselves. And the three that I can see as we walk through the passage, the first one is seeing Christ in verses 1 to 6. The second one is speaking truth in verses 7 to 15. And the third one is looking to the eternal in verses 16 to 18. Seeing Christ Speaking truth, looking to the eternal. Freedom actually begins with seeing Christ. It's really good to know who you are in Christ, who I am. Great thing to know. But freedom actually starts with seeing who God is in Christ. And the reason why that's important is because Satan doesn't want us to know who God really is, what God's really like. Satan has a great plan. And it involves making you and I imagine God to be other than the God that he really is. And therefore, imagining him to be harsh, aloof, distant, uncaring, not connected with our lives, unloving, bored, diffident, whatever you want to call it. And Satan loves it when people conceptualize God like that, even old man with beard in sky, not really connected with the world. That lie works very well for him. So verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What Satan doesn't want people to know, what he's trying to cover up, is the idea that God is exactly like Christ. Satan hates that revelation, because he knows that if people see see Jesus Christ crucified and risen, and then think, wow, if God is like that... He must be loving. He must be the kind of self-giving, loving, caring God who would become flesh and live the life of a servant and wash people's feet and die for his enemies. And as he's doing so, say, my God, please, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. If God's like that, he can't possibly be the aloof, distant, uncaring, harsh God that I think he is. So Satan tries to stop people seeing Jesus. He hates it when people see who Jesus is. Because when they do, when we do, we realize God, the creator of the universe, is like this. And if God is like this, he loves. He loves. He is a God of kindness and mercy, everlastingly a God of grace and forgiveness. And so I can't possibly remain enslaved to the lie that God is distant and unlike and uncaring. I mustn't do that. And I can't if I've seen that God is like Jesus. So Satan says, oh, I don't want them to realize that Christ is the image of God. I'm going to blind them from that. But God, verse 6, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God who can speak, and create light for the universe in a word. That God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
has shone in our hearts as well to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Satan is busying himself trying to stop people from looking at Jesus Christ because he knows that when we do and we realize that's who God is, we won't be enslaved to the lie that God is distant and uncaring and unloving. But what God has done, because God knows that's what the devil's up to, what God has done is to shine in our hearts and give us the revelation that that is exactly who God is and give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And all, his lie, all the devil's lies melt into air when that happens because all of the things that you and I are predisposed to believe through a mixture of bad authority figures, bad fathers, imagination, old traditions, all the things we are predisposed to believe about God melt into air and get replaced by the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And we look at the face of Jesus and think, that is what the glory of God fully expressed looks like. A crucified and resurrected Savior. And that's where freedom starts. And in my experience, it's where freedom continues as well. It's not just something you need once at the start of your Christian life, and then you get it. And then the rest of your life, you don't really need to look at Jesus Christ any longer because you're fine. You go, oh, I know, I know that. I know that's what God's like. Fine, crack on with the day. My experience is that all of us get entangled and trapped over and over again because we lose sight of who God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Pastorally, I've seen this a lot. People, I had one just a couple of weeks ago. There's a young man talking to me after a message, and he is trapped and embroiled in a theological doctrine that he can't get his head around. And I'm looking, I'm talking it through with him, and I'm realizing as we're talking, you are finding it very difficult to see Jesus. In fact, you've completely lost sight of the fact that that's who God is because you've been spending all of your energy trying to figure out this doctrine. And, in, and it's good to figure out doctrine, right? It's my day job. I love doctrine. But if it takes you away from Jesus, it's very destructive. Because what happens is you spend all of your time reasoning it through and figuring it all out, and then you realize, hang on, a month, two months, three months have passed, and I have taken my eyes off the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So my view of God has got distorted. My view of my purpose has got distorted and so on. You can get it with totally different things. I've, I've met people like this where, I've con where I'm concerned for them because they might be like activists who are passionate about justice. and think, wait, praise God for that. But in their pursuit of it, they get so preoccupied, sometimes get, can get so preoccupied in it that they lose sight of Jesus. And then what happens is you become all about the, they become all about the issue and all about what needs to be done and they lose the hope and they lose the ground of confidence that justice will ultimately win out because they've lost sight of the person of Jesus. And as a result, can become quite angry or depressed about it and lose the thread completely. And actually, the same thing has happened to me. In my mid-twenties, I was Richard Dawkins, who was a famous atheist at the time, released a big book called The God Delusion. And I thought, I want to write a response to this and a critique. And I did. And I spent a long time, a month of whatever, writing quite hard at it and working and going into atheism and belief and theories and science and philosophy and apologetics and the history of the church and the Bible. And I lost sight of Jesus. It sounds stupid. You think, how could you write a Christian book and lose sight of Jesus? But I did because all of my time was engaging in debate with this individual. And even though it was kind of good, just like pursuing justice is good and doctrine is good, it took my eyes away from Jesus. And I after a month of this, I realized one morning, I don't know where my joy has gone. But I'm not happy in God now. I'm writing something I think is good. 
but I'm not happy in God. Lord, what is going on? And I realized I have taken my eyes from the face of Jesus Christ. And actually what I needed to do, I, just, I started binging on things for a while that pointed me back to the love of Jesus and pointed me back to who he is in Christ. One of which was a performance that we're going to see at the end of this meeting. Another one of which was uh, a movie called The Miracle Maker. It's just like a kid's movie about Jesus that just tells the story of the life of Jesus. And as I saw him being acted out and voiced by Ray Fiennes and just seeing Jesus going up to Ma Mary Magdalene afflicted with all these demons and saying, come out of her, let her go, and liberating people. I thought, that's who he is. That's why I love him. I can write the book. I can engage with other people. But actually, I need to be pointed back to who Jesus is. And if I lose that, I'm going to lose everything. I need to see Christ that I might be freed from the lies I will otherwise believe about who God is. I need to see the image of God. So we need to see Christ. And that's where freedom starts. But freedom also involves a lot of speaking truth. Right, this is the second thing in verses 7 to 15. Freedom starts with seeing Christ, but it involves a lot of speaking as well. It's not just an inner experience. It actually involves a lot of active declaration. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what's been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Right? Now in the scriptures, there is a very powerful connection between speaking, hearing and believing. Those, all three points of that triangle are closely connected in the Bible. That you speak, and as a result you hear, and as a result you believe, and because you believe you speak, and it, the three are all connected. So Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You, by speaking, can affect realities in the world. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. With the mouth one confesses and is saved, right? Speaking, and hearing, and believing are all connected, and what the obvious part of that is that in the Bible, we say things because we believe them. That's all, most people know that. Yeah, I just, I, okay, so I say it because I believe it. What people often don't realize is that at the same time, we also believe things because we say them. You speak things out loud, you are much more likely to believe them as true. You sing things, you declare things. You're much, and that's true, by the way, whether the things you're saying are true or false. Right? You speak lies regularly, you will believe them. Psychologists and therapists are good at, in the last generation, have shown us this in a multitude of ways. Some of us have had counseling and been taught this stuff. If you use one that's come through in my family, it's just really helped us. If you say, I'm, just, I'm overwhelmed, say, do not say that. You are not overwhelmed. You are having a difficult day. Right? If you say it, you will function more as if you are. You have a bad night's sleep. Right? You go into work, they say, how are you doing? And you, the difference is huge between saying, for instance, I'm absolutely shattered. I got no sleep last night. I don't know how I'm going to get through today. If you say it, it will feel more like it's true and you'll start to believe it. If instead you say, yeah, it was a difficult night. Kids were up a lot. I didn't get as much sleep as I wanted. I think I'll be all right. But you say that, you will begin to believe it. It's not just true of Scripture, although most importantly that's where it's true. It's true of the way we talk about everything. That's why the Christian church has made a big deal out of declaring things. That's why Christian churches have so often built their worship services around the creed, among other things, and praying things out loud and singing things out loud. Say, I believe in one God. That's why we say it, in part, because we want to reinforce the belief in our own souls. And that can be true whether you're speaking a truth or a lie. 
This is a great quotation from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor up the road at Westminster Chapel for many years in the 50s and 60s. He said, the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. What about treatment? The first thing we have to learn is what the psalmist learned. We must learn to take ourselves in hand. Speak to ourselves, right? This is, and he quotes the psalmist. He says, you know, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God. That's why the psalmist does it. It's not because he's talking to himself as a, it's not a mental illness. It's a way of speaking truth to your soul. And then he says, this is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? I love that quote. I wish I'd written that quote. Most of your unhappiness in life is because you're listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. You're allowing the passive back, sort of backseat driver in your brain to tell you what to believe instead of speaking to your soul and saying, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Wait, awake, O oh my soul. Awaken my harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. And talking like that to yourself, which we do in the church all the time. And not just this is just what Paul does in this very passage we just read. Paul is... I don't want to overplay it. He's almost practicing cognitive behavioral therapy on himself in this passage. Look at what he says. We are affl- if you're a therapist, you might recognize this exact tactic, right? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, he says, right? I've been afflicted by all kinds of things. I'm not, people are coming for me. Paul's faced a lot of affliction, a lot more affliction than I have. But I'm not crushed. I'm not, I'm not accepting that. I have been afflicted, but not crushed. We are perplexed but not driven to despair. Now, I find myself going, what is God doing? I'm perplexed at times, but I'm not despairing because I know whom I believed. I am persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. Jesus, forsaken, not me. I get persecuted. I don't get forsaken. I've never been abandoned by God. I am struck down, but not destroyed. Do you see how he's doing it? He's saying, that's true, but that is not true. And he's partly doing it to convince the church and he's, I think, partly doing it because he is simply used to talking that way about his own sufferings. Brothers and sisters, if we want to live in freedom and stand on the truth, not lies, one of the things we have to do is to speak the truth, just to declare it. And I don't mean as an occasional quirk when you're having a really tough time. I mean that as part of our daily routines. We want to... So, Silent Bible reading is wonderful, right? I love silent Bible. I do it. I did it myself for some time this morning before I drove up here. I love silent Bible. I'm all for that. But there is a very important place in our lives for actually reading aloud and hearing ourselves speaking the the words of Scripture as well, not just reading it on our own, right? To for praying aloud and not just praying in our head. Now, obviously, if you pray on the bus, you might want to be a little bit more judicious about what exactly you're going to say. Yes, Lord, I pray you'd help me with the lust I'm feeling for that person on the third row of this very bus. That's not going to be helpful. You know, I'm kind of kidding around. but You've got to be wise about it, but that's one of the reasons why it can be helpful to pray when you go out for a walk or helpful to pray in your room, which is what Jesus says is a good thing to do. Because you want to say things out loud. Because there's power in speaking. I believe, so I spoke. And it's going to be true of the way that you raise your families if you have kids. You, you speak to your children and you actually get them to declare the good things of God that God has done in their lives. I do it with my three-year-old. Like, how do you, you've got to teach people how to speak the good things of God. Tell your children, your spouse, your friends, your family members about what God has done. And as we do those things, we find that we, we believe them more by virtue of saying them. 
I believed, and so I spoke. And for some of us, the discipline of speaking truth out loud will be the most important practice we take from this entire series. And it's what we did at the end of Hillary's message two weeks ago. We're going to do it again at the end of this message. That there is a taking hold of the truth and saying it. And for some of us, that will be the main thing that God wants to do in your life through this series. Is just to begin a habit that will, I trust will last a lifetime of speaking the truth out loud. I believed, so I spoke. So if you want to be fully free, and it starts with seeing Christ, and it involves a lot of speaking truth. But it also involves looking to the eternal. Right? There is a past dimension, seeing Christ. There's a present dimension, speaking truth. There's a future dimension as well. We look to what is eternal. This is verse 17 and 18. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. One of the most powerful lies in history is that if something is real, you have to be able to see it. Now, this is something little children believe. And many of us naturally go, something's going to be real. You've got to be able to see it. Right? The lie is actually the foundation of all idolatry. Because if some, for something to be real, you have to be able to see it. Then if God is real, you must be able to see God. So we better make God, make an idol, bow down to it, touch it, see it, right? That's where idolatry comes from. The idea that if something's real, you've got to be able to see it. The weird thing about that lie is how obviously untrue it is. In the sense that you and I know that all of the things that matter most in life cannot be seen. Love. Happiness. Truth. Joy. Meaning. Hope. God. None of them can be seen. And they are much more important, not much less important, than physical stuff that you and I can see. And we don't want to be Gnostics and become weird about it and say, oh no, physical matter doesn't matter. I'm not saying that either. I'm saying we know that it's not true that for something to be real it has to be seen. And yet somehow when it comes to God, we tend to think as if it is. We know, we should know, that visible things matter less than invisible things, not more. Almost all of the things that you and I live for cannot be seen. And rightly so. But the devil pushes the lie anyway. You, something can be real, you've got to see it. He pushes the lie because he knows that if we believe it, we've only got two options. Atheism and idolatry. Right? If you believe that the only things that are real are things you can see, you either become an atheist, as in you say, God can't be seen, therefore he doesn't exist. Or you become an idolater. God is real, therefore he must be able to be seen. I better make a God. But if Satan can get you to believe that seen things matter more than unseen things... You will, he will have an atheist or an idolater out of all of us, or possibly both. There's no meaning if the seen is greater than the unseen. Because in the end, hope for the future will always get drowned by the physical, visible realities of the present sufferings we're in. And this is the exact thing Paul is saying he does not believe. But you see, life doesn't have meaning and hope if the only things that exist are the things that are seen. What you need, if you want to hope, you need something that's unseen, that is not yet here, that you know will be, that pulls you forward in hope, rather than allowing the hope to be drowned in a sea of visible sufferings. And if you don't see that, if you think the seen matters more than the unseen, there will be no meaning, and there will be no truth, and you will always be a nothing, Wilson. What happens is you end up living in the underworld of the silver chair. 
I don't know if you know um, C.S. Lewis's book. This is one of the lesser known ones, but it's just a great story. The Narnians, the two kids and this grumpy creature called a Marshwiggle, they fall into this underground world under Narnia. They're in this massive network of tunnels and caves, and they're down there for ages. And even as you read it, you become quite claustrophobic. It's kind of dark, and everything's lit by lamps and fires, but there's no sky, no, none of that. They can't see it. They're all underground all the time. And they eventually meet this witch who claims to be the queen of the underworld. And she does this sort of magic thing on them where she lights a fire with this sweet-smelling incense, plays, strums the mandolin, and just starts lying to them. Saying, do you know what? There is no world up there. I don't know why you want to go. You keep talking about it. I, I can't see it. No one I know has ever seen it. What are you talking about? And they say, no, no, it is. They look, there's a sun and a sky and there's a lion called Aslan. And she says, no, there, there really isn't. What's happened is you've seen our lamp and you've just made it larger and invented the sun. And you've seen a cat and you've made it larger and invented the lion. You call him Aslan. Oh, it's a pretty name. I wonder what that means. But it's not real. All there is is what you can see. The unseen world of which you speak doesn't exist. And they're beginning to get into it. And they're starting to, the magic is working. And they're beginning to try to fight back. They're not quite sure what to do until Puddleglub, the marsh wiggle figure, leaps into the center of the thing. And he stamps on the fire and he speaks truth. He summons all of his strength and he tries to declare truth to the queen. And he says to her, suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things. Trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. All I can say is that the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. In other words, I am going to believe in the things that are unseen, even though right now I can't prove why that's true. But I'm not going to have this fire, this music, your lies. I'm going to declare the truth that there is an unseen world and it's far more important than the things I can see. And with that, they all come to their senses and I won't spoil the end, but it ends better than you might think. Right? That's what Paul is doing to the devil in this text. Paul is saying to the devil in 2 Corinthians 4, there are all kinds of sufferings. I am afflicted, I'm persecuted, I'm God. There are all kinds of accusations and lies coming at me, but I'm going to stamp on your fire, devil, and I'm not having it. I know that there is an unseen world that outweighs all comparison of the transient, little, dust-on-the-scales world we live in now. We walk by faith and not by sight. We look to the things that are not as seen, but that are unseen. And when we compare the two... Compare that which is seen, the sufferings of today, with the unseen eternal weight of glory to come. There is no comparison at all. If I go by what's seen, I'm a bunch of atoms soon to be redistributed. If I go by what is unseen, I am a child of God soon to be resurrected. And that makes me not a slave, but an heir. So friends, do not underestimate the enslaving power of a lie, but... Nor should we underestimate the saving power of the truth, which you shall know, and the truth will set you free. I'd like us to close by speaking the truth together. And to do this, uh, again, based on the Heidelberg Catechism, which I quoted a few weeks back, but I'd love us to just draw from two questions in it again, and then at the end of that, we're gonna, there's going to be a performance of something, which, as I mentioned earlier in the message, just was hugely helpful for me in just seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ. But these are two questions that come back to back. In the Heidelberg Catechism is a question and answer thing that the Germans wrote 500 years ago to help people understand basic Christianity. And the first one I'm going to read to you, but the second one I'd love us to stand and then declare together. Okay? So the first one asks the question of Jesus. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? That's what Christ means, anointed. Why is he called that? Okay? Answer, because he's been ordained by God the Father 
and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance, our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father, and our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. That's why he's called Christ. He's been anointed as our prophet, priest, and king. Right? Can you stand? And we're going to read the second one now. The, what the qu- next question, which I love, says, and why are you called a Christian then? Right? That's, who, that's who Christ is. What are you doing calling yourself anointed? Right? That's a weird thing. To say. Jesus, I get that with Jesus. Why would you say it of you? Right? But why are you called a Christian? Answer, because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Father, we thank you so much for the wonder of the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. We pray this week that you would help us to see Christ, to see him right now as we watch this, as we sing, as we mingle and talk and go back to our homes to see Christ, to speak truth, and to fix our eyes on eternal things. We pray for your help by your spirit in living that way that we might stand on the truth and the truth might set us free. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.